0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I had the real privilege of talking to Dr. Greg Okeson. Dr. Okeson is the Dean of the E. Stanley Jones School of World Mission and Evangelism at Asbury Seminary. Dr. Okeson was a church planner and served as a faculty member at Scott Christian University in Kenya. All told, he spent 13 years serving and working alongside the people of East Africa he also recently released a book entitled a public missiology how local churches witness to a complex world this book received christianity today's 2021 book award in the missions global church category So this conversation was an absolute delight. We talked a little bit about Dr. Oakeson's background, why he wrote a public missiology, some of the problems facing the church right now, and how we can develop a faith that isn't shaped by culture, but that is deep, thick, and complex enough to encounter the complexities of the world. We talk about how to recognize and tear down idols that have become cultural norms in our society, and also how to develop sustainable habits that transform not only our lives, but the communities in which we live. Let's listen. Dr. Okison, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. I have been really looking forward to our conversation.
1: Well, thanks for asking me. I'm privileged to be a part of it.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I've really been looking forward to it, and there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. But first of all, I want to talk about your own calling. So as I understand it, you're a third-generation missionary kid and a missionary yourself. How did you experience your call?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I think I was born in Africa. And even though uh, I only lived there in my early childhood, I think I carried that heritage with me. It was an important part of who I saw myself to be and was involved in a very mission-minded church back here in the United States growing up. And so, and had parents that were deeply involved in world missions, so having, uh, you know, really educated, godly men and women in our home from Africa and Asia and Latin America was just normal for me. Mm -hmm. So I think I just carried that as a really important marker in who I was. And actually, when I graduated from college, I went to Urbana Mission Conference and went through all these booths and was kind of trying to sell myself, you know, to, to become a, you know, a full-time missionary. And God closed all the doors. And it was really, really painful for me because I just felt like, you know, this is, God, this is what I want to do. And next day I went back to my home church and the very next day they asked me to be the youth pastor and my immediate answer was no you know I (laughs) I want to I want to go and and be with the nations and yet it really was God was calling me to love North American youth um, be involved in evangelism discipleship and those were powerful beautiful years I coached lacrosse in a high school. I was involved in youth lives. And then eventually we would go to be missionaries. But it was really like God was just saying, you know what, I want you to be faithful in a local congregation. I want you to study culture. I want you to become immersed in North American culture before I'm going to release you or send you to now um, be a part of ministry amongst the nations.
0: Mm-hmm. When it was time for you to go be a minister amongst the nations, how did you know that was the right time?
1: Yeah, again, it it was really the Holy Spirit working in our lives. I was actually uh, pursuing a PhD in Scotland at the time and was uh, headed down that path and And uh, one morning I was reading in the book of Proverbs, all of the ways of a person look right to them, but God looks at the desires of the heart. And I just, it was so powerful that the Holy Spirit was saying, you're doing a good thing, but you're not doing it at the right time and you're not doing it for the right reasons. Mm. And and so I went back and I told my wife, uh, we were married at that time. We'd uh, been married just a couple of years. And I said, I just feel like I have to say no to this. And it was within the same week, again, that God opened up a door um, uh, for a conversation about theological education and leadership development in Africa. And and I was involved in theological education and leadership development at Wheaton College. Um, But it was really God saying, I need you to say no to something before I can give you a yes. Yes. And, um, and so we, we went through that uh, process and met with a dear mentor who uh, helped coach us in terms of where the greatest needs are in the world, in terms of who God had made us to be. And that, uh, that sent us back to Africa. I actually didn't see my, even though I'm a third generation missionary, I didn't see our, myself going back to Africa, but it was a pretty strong Call for being involved in theological education, church planting, leadership development, training church planters, training missionaries in Africa for Africa. That was really that call to 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 go back to Africa.
0: Yeah, and around that time, you and your wife adopted children from the Philippines. Is that right?
1: No, both uh, both of my kids are adopted from the U.S. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, they're they're half Filipino. And I oh,
0: okay.
1: God just in, stepping into our world. Both of them were things that uh, birth mother uh, initiated, and even though we were pursuing adoption, uh, they were times in which we were approached by someone. And so they're both Caucasian and both Filipino, uh, but not by bio- they're they're not biological, mm-hmm. um, and they're two years apart. But that's yeah. awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about your time. You spent 13 years in Tanzania, is that right?
1: I spent We spent two years church planting in Tanzania, and then 11 years leadership development, theological education, training, uh, African church planters, missionaries in Kenya. So, okay. 13 years in Africa, you're right.
0: Okay. Wow. What was that experience like for you and your family?
1: Well, certainly going to the village, you know so we 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 moved into um, a Muslim village in tanzania no no electricity, no running water. We lived in a house just like everybody else did. Wow. my son at that time was two months old and um, and I mean talk about deeply incarnational ministry. I mean without a doubt, two of the hardest, most profound most impactful years and and actually in a really fascinating way some of the two richest theological years of my entire life and when we come to talk about the book i can i can unpack yeah. that some more but um but yeah i mean we nobody in our village knew english we we had to learn an unwritten oral language Oh, wow. And um, so a lot of awkwardness. And I'm good with awkwardness, but boy, <laughs> those years were just chock-filled with uh, with awkwardness.
0: Wow. And maybe a little lonely, too, I would think, if you couldn't easily communicate with your neighbors.
1: Yeah. You know, it's certainly the beginning. Uh, we ended up forming really powerful, strong relationships with... Um, you know, Muslim leaders even lived in a Muslim leader's home um, for oh, wow. probably a month over those years. Deep, deep friendships and mm-hmm. and experienced all that they experience in terms of fragility of life and disease and and poverty and malnutrition. We experience those things in our body, perhaps mm-hmm. not at the same time Level that they could. We were three hours away from the closest hospital. We were about eight hours away from the closest uh, good medical assistance. So uh, eight hours from the nearest city. Okay. So we did have a vehicle, and we were able okay. to um, to leave periodically. Um, but yeah, they were they were lonely years. They were years of incredible spiritual warfare. You know, just learning a people, learning. Uh, Mm -hmm. listening to them, uh, learning their language, loving them, uh, and being loved by Mm -hmm. them. And I think that was so powerful. Uh, So, you know, I don't want to sound heroic because I actually, Mm -hmm. looking back, feel like we received from them so much more than perhaps even we, we gave to them.
0: Yeah. What are some of the things that you, as you reflect on it, that you see that you received?
1: Well, hospitality I mean, I learned hospitality in that village and then and then you know the other 11 years living in Kenya, I mean just uh so so deep and rich um, of a of a welcoming received uh i, I mean friendships and laughter um, but I, I really I think and I and and in my in this book that we'll talk about, I dedicate the book to the villages in Tanzania and to my theological college in Kenya, because really I feel like they taught me theology. Now, you know, I had multiple wow. degrees and and the credentials, but really I think they taught me how to connect theology with everyday life with public realities. They taught me different, I mean, theirs is a different mapping system, cartography, different um, lenses, hermeneutic lenses of looking at theology. I mean, I am who I am because of how much I feel like um, my brothers and sisters in Africa have taught me. And that doesn't mean that I occupy some special position now. It's just the fact that well a well-known missiologist brian stanley talks about reverse conversion how western missionaries would go to another place in order to convert people but in the process found themselves to be converted themselves into Mm -hmm. ways of thinking and theologizing and looking at life and when you're you know racing off in the middle of the night on precarious roads, carrying somebody who is dying to Mm -hmm. the nearest hospital, you are, there's no way you can do that without also entering into their world and reflecting on God and salvation and the mission of God and what he's doing in this world. Uh, and so those years were just so profoundly rich years in terms of learning from my neighbors.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. It sounds like they were beautiful years.
1: They are. You know, looking back, you know, you know the danger is always to romanticize. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. And And as the years go by, it's easier to romanticize. But they were hard years. I mean, they were years yeah. of tears. They were years of you know, malaria, tuberculosis, worms. I mean, you know, they were years of, you know, wrestling, crying out to God, you know, so uh, they they were powerful, powerful Mm -hmm. years. And they were beautiful years, but they were messy Mm -hmm. years, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that I'm starting to learn in my own life is that a lot of times I experience joy and sadness or good and Mm -hmm. hardship at the same time and learning to hold both and in some ways appreciate both not just the good things you know because yeah yeah
1: Yeah, and sometimes it's hard to see the good things yes of it and then you know five years out ten years out you're looking back and all you remember is the good things
0: and,
1: yes, and, and you know, that's the danger of the romanticizing, but I I don't think it's always a bad thing because we we want to be able to look back and to say wow, did I change? Wow, did yeah. I grow and the Holy Spirit was there and he was working in powerful ways and ways that I didn't even fully understand during those during, you know, the mm-hmm. throes of it.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So then, how did you come to Asbury Seminary?
1: Yeah. So again, interesting stories. <laughs> uh, so we were struggling with the education of our kids. So we, uh, we were homeschooling. We would bring in tutors to help us homeschool. And then our last year in Africa, I was actually at a uh, hospital. I was integrating theology into a medical curriculum. And it was located where uh, where there was an international boarding school. So our kids were able to go to an international uh, school. But I was working myself out of positions. Mm -hmm. and We were really looking at what is the next step. So we were looking almost entirely at other places in the continent of Africa, even North Africa and some other countries really wanting as our kids entered into middle school, we really wanted some stability.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So uh, my wife and I went to the 2010 um, Cape Town, Luzon Congress on World Evangelization. And down there, a friend of mine uh, from Wheaton uh, told me about a position at Asbury. And nice. on, on paper, it I thought this this is incredible. I mean, it it sounds like me, but <laughs> i I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure that we were ready to go back to the United States. So, I to make a long story short, Terry Maku was the dean of the ESJ School at that time. He was at the conference, and so he and I had a meal together or maybe just a coffee together, and he asked me to apply. And so it was it was kind of a, a process of God saying, you know, here's an open door, and this is where I want you." and um, And truly, I mean it, you know, again, looking back, I've been here 10 years. Um, you know, we have the nations in our school and and such yes. an incredible, diverse body, um, and to be able to work with master's students and PhD students, um, from all over the world, as well as, you know, from all over the United States has just been such a privilege.
0: Yeah. So really, as you're telling me your story and your calling to the nations, really your calling didn't change, even though your location did.
1: Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, I, I probably still struggle with my location, but, (laughs) um, but You know, I'm, besides the fact that our school is so diverse and I'm, um, I oversee our global partnerships here, at At so I get to travel a lot when there's not a pandemic. My wife and I are working with a denomination to um, plant a multicultural, multi-ethnic church here in Lexington, uh, because we really want to worship with the nations. I mean, that, so, so I think you're exactly right. I just... I, I hesitate because it, there's always this sense in which I, I wrestle with the fact that we've come back to the West. Mm, yeah. We, At the same point, we've crafted such rich relationships here. Um, and truly, you know, Wilmore, Kentucky, for being a small town is such this, you know, it's like a little United Nations here.
0: It really is. Yeah. Yeah. What is the name of the church plant that you guys are working with?
1: Yeah, so it's Every Nation Lexington, and uh, we actually have our first informational meeting. And we've been doing a lot of discipleship on UK's campus, um, and very diverse, uh, largely focused upon a college age. Um, and so we're going to formally launch the church in the fall, but uh, have, are this spring uh, doing a lot of um pre-launch meetings, and, and like I said, have been doing discipleship for years and so have a strong uh, base of young men and women who are going to be a part of that.
0: Yeah. That sounds awesome and really exciting too.
1: Yeah. I, it's one of those really life-giving things that it just, you know, it feels like just a, a beautiful gift uh, brought into our world.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, I want to move on and talk about your book, A Public Missiology How Local Churches Witness to a Complex World. And it's really, your book is really exciting, but it's even more exciting because it received Christianity's Today, Christianity Today's 2021 Book Award in the Missions and Global Church category. So, congratulations on that. That's very exciting. Why did you choose to write this book now?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think this has been, uh, in many ways, a journey. You know, it's a it's a culmination of decades of God taking me on a journey. Uh, so witness, you know, as a missiologist, as a missionary, and somebody who is a y- youth pastor and very involved in evangelism, I mean, witness is in my DNA. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I I think. You know, for years, witness was solely something that happened to individuals. Um, And by the way, I don't ever want us to move away from uh, witness to individuals. But I think God has shown me that we are called, especially as the Church of Jesus Christ, to witness the larger realities. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: my years as a youth pastor involved in college ministry at Wheaton College and then and then really it was living in the village where, you know, we were church planting, but we were dealing with poverty. Mm-hmm. We were involved in witness, but we were involved in issues of health. And so how do you, how do you connect the gospel to disease? How do mm-hmm. you connect the gospel to poverty? How do you connect church planting to agriculture? And really, it was—I I think it was my my neighbors, and then and then in the years to, that followed, teaching at a theological institution and having my my African students ask me questions, where they were making those connections, or they were certainly trying to make those connections, and me realizing that perhaps my understanding of the gospel was too small to address uh-huh. larger complex issues in life. And so uh, there is a field of public theology, which is wonderful and there's great contributions, but there've been a team of us who are a part of the, um, the American Society of Missiology that have been wrestling for the last, oh, probably 15 years or so. With a, what does a public missiology look like? And actually, in the very end, the appendix of the book, uh, we have kind of a statement where we have, as 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 professors, have kind of crafted what what we think public missiology is.
0: Yeah. So that is begging me to ask the next question: What? How do you define public missiology?
1: Yeah, I think I, I, you know. So I, maybe the easiest way to to refer to it is that as missiologists we care deeply about witness we care deeply about the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church into all facets of the world Mm -hmm. and and of course you know all you have to do is just um, read scripture to see that that is the story of the mission of God that is where God is taking the world and so the question is, what does witness? What does the gospel look like? What does it look like in and through local congregations, where we take very seriously all of the all of the world? So then, when we ask the question, "What is all of the world?" Well, it takes us into really messy, complex realities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're all habituated, and we you know we just come out of just a really hard year where that kind of began with a pandemic and then the racial, incredible mm-hmm. racial violence that we saw that has been with us as a country for many years, but just we we saw it in really stark uh, terms. And then to go through this highly polemical uh, political season, I think just shows the fact that we we are habituated into a very complex public realities, and yet, do we understand the gospel? Is our understanding of the gospel as thick that mm-hmm. it actually can address that? It can that it can interpenetrate that it can that it that it can speak to uh, the public realities that we live. And there are many people, especially in their you know the generation z and millennials who are giving up on the church mm-hmm. because the church just keeps giving really overly simplistic answers to really complex problems and yet we have a gospel that that is so rich that is so beautiful that's so multifaceted that that isn't just a cognitive thing but is something that captures our affections and needs our embodiment, and it needs to actually be lived out in local congregations. So I, again, I think I've written this book because I really feel like we've got that polarity between we live every day within this, you know, John Wesley talks about complicated wickedness. We live uh-huh. every day in that that context of complicated wickedness, and yet we we have been discipled into a very thin understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet there is so much more. And 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 really that's what the Holy Spirit has taken me on a journey into understanding how much we have in uh, in scripture and in this this biblical narrative and in our understanding of the gospel. So it's really it's trying to connect those two.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading it, by the way. I found it very fascinating. And so I really appreciate you giving us, not just me, but all of us, this gift. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, You touched on something I wanted to ask you about regarding uh, millennials pulling away from the church because the church historically has given a simple faith, like the right way to live, and then— but as millennials have grown up, I'm a millennial. As I've entered more of the world, it has seemed kind of thin and hasn't matched the complexity yeah. that I face and that others in my generation are facing. So I guess I have a two-part, a two-part question. What can millennials do? Because I keep going to church. I haven't stopped going because there's, I'm like, I'm not sure it kind of works for me anymore, which that sounds like it's all about me, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Um, But I don't want to lose that groundedness and that part of my faith because it is important to me. So I guess I'm curious, what can I do as a millennial? And then how can the church kind of respond, not just to me, but to to all of us to help us develop a more, a, a thick faith, as you call it?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so let me let me try and answer that. Maybe in a reverse order to say, okay. I, I think it's really important that churches listen to millennials and listen to their questions, even if we're not able to give you know kind of wrap wrap this up in a little package with a nice bow on top and say, "Here's your answer." Yeah. Uh, and, and, and saying that, I, w- that does not mean that we move away from belief or conviction or passion. And I think that's the beautiful thing of it, is that a, a thick faith does not mean a faith that is just academic. A thick faith is not something that we believe lightly. It's not a, it's not a, a half step to relativism or pluralism. Uh And I think that's the thing that it actually takes us deeper into the character of God. It takes us deeper into the narrative of Scripture. And so I think the first challenge is that our churches have got to do a better job listening and just saying, we are not connecting the dots between this incredible gospel that we have been given through the power of the Holy Spirit and the lived realities of people in realms like uh, political divi- divisiveness and racism and gross economic polarity, we've not we've not connected those. Mm-hmm. And we've got to do a better job. And then I think we do need to. Uh, maybe this <laughs> is going to sound too simplistic, but we've got to immerse ourselves over and over again in the narrative of Scripture, and mm-hmm. we've got to let that be the narrative that guides us because we live every day by narratives. Mm-hmm. It's just that the narratives that we live by are narratives that have been defined by a political ideology or have been defined by a kind of a cultural context, or sometimes they've been defined by who we don't want to be. So mm-hmm. we don't want to be liberal. So we let that be our our narrative Whereas we've got to really allow um, the mission of God to be our narrative. And so you, I, I think we've just got to do a better job telling the story, retelling the story, re-retelling the story, and welcoming um, people into that story to help them to understand that it's not just pastors, but it's everyday people that are called to participate in the divine nature and to live these things out in their everyday lives.
0: Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for me and my generation and how can we respond and engage with that?
1: Yeah, so I think uh I think we've got to do the connecting pieces between our understanding of the gospel and the lived realities of everyday mm-hmm. life. So and you know, ideally, local congregations are actually the places where this takes place. And I and at the end of the book, I have three case studies to try and show how three different churches, one in Montreal, one in Nashville, and one in Kenya, actually lives these things out because too often we have tried to address complex social problems with simplistic individual answers. And yet we've been given a community we've been entrusted into a community and and i over the years i actually have found just an in, incredible love for the local congregation so one of the reasons i'm impo- involved in a in a multicultural church plant is that uh, you you are not going to get a you're not going to sidestep messy political racial economic issues in a multicultural church
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's that's exactly what we've got to wrestle with we've got to we've got to make the connections between the gospel and the issues that people are experiencing every day of our lives mm-hmm. uh, which takes us into um, you know domains that perhaps we feel uncomfortable within.
0: Yeah, how do we navigate? the the sacred and the secular is there an appropriate um is there an appropriate
1: separation yeah it's interesting so I, I in the book i try and talk about them as movable slots that people use to make sense of their world and i, I uh-huh. certainly the enlightenment what it did was it just separated and said you know these two realms should not touch each other and the secular is this enormous realm, you know, that involves mm-hmm. our everyday life, our work, our, our politics, our money, our leisure, it involves science and involves all of this. And then this really little box is the sacred, and we normally associate it with just with the local congregation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or our, our devotions. And, and yet, I, I, I mean, I think that we need to see that the sacred is in and for all of life. Mm-hmm. So we've got to combine them. The problem is, is that as especially Western evangelicals, we, we don't have a great history of combining them well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we sacredize political ideologies, and in the process, do incredible harm. we cannot allow our political ideologies, our economic ideologies. we can't just simply baptize those with spiritual or religious warrant
0: uh-huh.
1: and and i I think that's where there is sometimes a the importance of distinction. I won't use the word separation, but maybe I'll use the word distinction, because we we just know all throughout Christian history that uh, that there are that bad things certainly do happen when the sacred combines with the secular. But but God, I mean, God in His shalom is the God that that cojoins these together. So uh, we've got to think of ways to integrate our faith into all aspects of life, but without uh, simply just baptizing who we are and what we do with some kind of religious or spiritual warrant.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And talking about the cultural norms— A lot of times, I think what you're saying is sometimes the culture norms get so embedded within our Christian faith that it's hard to make the separation between what is culturally acceptable and how the world works for us specifically and what is from the Christian faith. How do we learn to recognize the ideologies behind this and then make changes where needed?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's, you know, certainly it's a bigger question that I'm going to be able to answer, <laughs> to. but I, we've got to learn to study culture. So I, I gave a strong plea for us to know Scripture, to, to participate in the scriptural narrative. We've done a really poor job as Western evangelicals, as Western Christians, and, and even studying culture. Um, so we, we think, well, it's culture, I know it, but so much of culture is invisible uh-huh. uh, and, and it operates deep within us that we've been enculturated into it. We've been habituated into it. So these ideologies, so the first step is actually seeing, um, seeing our ideologies, seeing our, our own culture. And that's often one of the hardest steps Get, yes. Because it's it's so much a part of us. So obviously, you know, I, I go and I live in Africa and I come back and there there is a sense in which you can see things because you've been away from it. You see things in new ways that you've never seen before. But it's hard to do that just with a short term missions trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's challenging for us to do it while we're immersed in culture. I do want to come back again and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and mm-hmm. I think that the power of the Holy Spirit can allow us to see our cultural ideologies. Uh, Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer both talk about how, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have to learn to say no to our political ideologies, so that by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can say yes to immersing ourselves back into the political realm, which is, which is a realm that flows out of our humanity, it flows out mm-hmm. of creation. nation. Um, so I think learning to say no, and learning to say yes, is important, um, asking the Holy Spirit to help us in the process. Again, uh, come back to worshiping in a multicultural multinational church forces us as we are living alongside brothers and sisters from different racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different political camps, and, mm-hmm. and listening to them uh, can help us to see our own cultural ideology. So I, my personal passion is that so much of it actually can and should happen in local congregations. Mm-hmm. I think the sacraments, I think the liturgy, I think we've got plenty of resources, but we've just not connected them with, our, with the culture that we live every day of our lives. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think... I think that's true. And I was talking to an alum who lives in Haiti and he was talking about some of the the voodoo practices which of course are a little are a lot different than what we're talking about now, but that exist in Haiti, but something he said ta- talking about that how these practices are become so embedded in your normal way of life yeah. that you don't even see them like you were talking about and he was sharing about how if you drink a can of pop with a lid on it, that I forget if you should throw it away separately or screw it back on and throw it away together so that your soul can't get out. And he said, it took me a while to realize that this this wasn't of God because it was just something I grew up doing and had been taught to me.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that, that's exactly yeah. it. So let me apply that to, you know, to our context here in the United States, yeah. you know, our, our political idea, many of us, our political ideologies, we've been habituated in them our whole lives, you know, we, yes. and we, our parents kind of handed them down to us. We, our churches have largely reinforced them. We've read scripture largely through those political lenses, which has reinforced our particular reading. Through the lenses of these ideologies, we've we've tended to gravitate with towards other people that share similarities, and then social media, of course, you know, these um, these echo chambers that that social media creates uh, just reinforces. And then on top of that, the other camp, whether the other camp are Republicans or Democrats, they become the other, and we you know, we set about vilifying them. So we deepen our political allegiances because we don't want to be like that person. Mm -hmm. or We don't want to be like that politician or we don't want to be liberal or we don't want to be conservative or evangelical. And so these words carry deep, rich meaning. And so we live our whole lives like this. And so let's say we're 25 years old and we've been habituated in this. Our whole lives, I mean, you, you need something that is equally thick and rich and multifaceted to actually untrain us. And, and, and what I am arguing is that I think the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission of God as embodied in local congregations actually has that ability to, to do that. But, um, you know, it's in in some ways we kind of pick on things like voodoo, and because that's safe, because mm-hmm. it's you know it's in another cultural context. But you know, I I think many yeah. of us have seen our own idolatries in the United States this past in twenty twenty.
0: Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. That like I would not have thought it was in the US, because voodoo isn't a practice that is as common here, right. but the similarities between how it happens yes. is very much the same. That's what I was trying to say.
1: Yeah, no, and that's a great illustration.
0: Yeah, is there, I mean, do we want to, so I've been thinking about this, especially with the political season that we've just come through. What is the place of our faith in our politics do we want to separate these out? How do we integrate them well?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think they've got to be integrated and they've got to be integrated in ways that are contextual. So I think, you know, some churches are in a better position to, to engage in robust discussions and to create, you know, even some, some tension. Other congregations need to take baby steps uh, in doing that. So in the book, I use the analogy of weaving uh-huh. um, because I think, you know, weaving is a, a beautiful picture. It's actually a biblical picture of um, something that is integrative, but can happen in different ways with different pieces of, of string or yarn or, or fabric. And so... Um, I think it, it's really important for church leadership to say, well, we are going to address these issues, but we've got mm-hmm. to find ways. So this this denomination that I'm a part of, a dear friend of mine who's actually um, my pastor, and you've had him on your podcast, Brian Taylor.
0: Oh, yes, he's the best.
1: Yeah, Brian's great. So Brian and I, so he, he's, he's up in um, Cincinnati, and his church is planting our church in Lexington. So he and I did a thing right before the election. Uh they call it courageous conversations. And the two of us just got up there and started talking about politics and tried to name some of the things that we're trying to name even in this podcast and mm-hmm. and you know the the danger with this is that you're speaking of things that are um very sensitive, uh, sometimes are beyond even our understanding. Um, But I think all, you know, Brian and his team have done a marvelous job, uh, you know, laying the framework for a very safe um, congregational culture where we actually can wade into these things. And, And there were people, you know, in that church that, uh, voted for Biden, and there were people in that church that voted for Trump, and 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 did so for very strong reasons. Um, but you know, I I think that would be an example of uh, of a church that says, "Well, we've got to talk about these things." There's an organization mm-hmm. called Colossian Forum that does a great job with trying to find really contentious issues and um and and enabling. Uh, people in con- local congregations to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're spending a lot of time. You know, I'm I'm spending a lot of time on politics, but certainly issues of race, issues of economics. These are all really uh, multifaceted issues, and you cannot separate race from economics from politics. You mm-hmm. can't just tease them apart, which is what makes them so challenging for us to address is that there is again this thickness to Mm -hmm. them
0: yes definitely they're separate but connected yeah 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 Yeah. um one of the things you also talk about is we've been talking about about how our theology and belief has been disconnected from our actions or our missiology Mm -hmm. how can we get those back together
1: Yeah, you know, our president's done a marvelous job of just, you know, foregrounding the importance of the body. And I think uh, we often have fallen prey, especially the evangelical church in North America, to uh, neo-gnosticism where, you know, the spiritual is really what we need and we don't put any emphasis upon the body. So I think practices are really important. Uh, mm-hmm. and and congregations regularly do practice so we so we we, we need practices of reconciliation mm-hmm. uh, and you can't do a practice without your body that's whole <laughs> aspect I think we've got to retrain our affections you know what do we love and I think hopefully uh people who listening to this would would say that um, Perhaps we have seen how our political ideologies in this last season have been loves for us that are greater than our loves for our brothers and sisters in Christ, greater than our loves for the kingdom of God in this world. Um, so we've got to we've got to retrain our affections. We've got to retrain our bodies. And again, I just think local congregations are a great place to do this. Uh, we mm-hmm. worship, we participate in the sacraments. Uh, when there's not COVID, we hug each other. We, <laughs> yes, we, we cry with each other. We we do life together in uh, small groups. Um, we forgive each other. I mean, these are all practices that involve. Our affections—they involve our bodies, and I think we need just more and more of those because we've been habituated, we've been trained in ways that um, that that don't represent the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you you mentioned, you alluded to it earlier, but you talked about in your book. You did three case studies of churches in Kenya, Montreal, and Nashville. Why is it so important that we study local congregations and their communities?
1: Yeah, so I, I I got into this actually in my PhD work. I I actually began using ethnography, which is a social science skill uh, for studying churches in Africa, and and actually it was amazing to me once you actually use these um, these methods, these skills. You start to see things that you've never seen before. You know, it'd be like somebody before they, they actually do inductive Bible study. They, they didn't see the text of Scripture, but now they've actually developed a skill set to actually do inductive Bible study, and they're seeing so much more of the text. Well, the social sciences are these really helpful resources that help us to study culture. And so I'm not a social scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist. Maybe I'm a wannabe anthropologist or sociologist. (laughs) I'm a a theologian who cares about theology in the midst of culture and and everyday life. And so Mm -hmm. I have benefited so much from studying local congregations. And what I've seen is that there is so much more in local congregations than we normally are aware of and and it really was that process of spending probably 7 8 years of studying local congregations in Africa that really has given me this passion that that we need resources to study local congregations certainly to see what our strengths are because i think we actually have more strengths and we're willing to give ourselves credit as well as be able to see some of our gaps our mm-hmm. blinders And um, I I I love the body of Christ. I I love local congregations. I love them warts and all. (laughs) I I guess I would tell your generation, um, please don't give up on the local church. The local church is not perfect in any location, but it is where uh, Christ is manifested in this world through the power of the Holy Spirit and we need gathering and scattering you know uh, we 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 can't just scatter because then we're gonna go without anything to witness to the world so it's in our gathering that we we rehearse the person of christ and his life we rehearse the sac we participate in the sacraments we tell the story of the mission of god we worship we forgive each other you know, it's in the gathering that 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 we embody who Christ is and for this world, and then we send each other out as individuals and as a community into uh into our worlds. And mm-hmm. um and so I think it's really I, I I just God's had me on a journey where I have learned so much and have seen so much beauty within local congregations. And um, I have a very simple, you know, probably a very basic, I should say, chapter in the book that talks about how do we study local congregations. And then I point people who want to get more into the sociology or the theology to other resources that can Mm -hmm. help them.
0: Yeah. In your case, studies, I was particularly drawn to the congregation in Kenya. Would you tell us a little bit about that congregation? And because I was just amazed by how they transformed their community
1: yeah and it's really neat so we at the seminary we would send out students you know into different churches and then we would go and and minister with our students our students who are studying theology uh, we would go and ministers to those churches. So this is a, um, it's an older, what you would call like an African initiated church. It broke off from a um, missionary church back in the 40s or the 50s of the last um, century. And they just welcomed me as uh, one of them. And, and my family, we ended up probably five or six years uh, becoming members and participating in that church. And they had such a great focus upon poverty and agriculture and land. And and yet they did it in a way that they didn't move away from uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They didn't move away from evangelism. They didn't move away from Jesus Christ, but they actually wove their passion for development and land and agriculture and gardens and health. And I would go out and see their ministries. And I, it, to this day, it's one of the, the, the best examples of, of a congregation and public witness that I've ever been a part of and and was, and was privileged to be a part of that church for quite a few years.
0: Yeah, because weren't they the ones that worked with the local government to create, were they the ones that made a park or am I misremembering? But I know they created lots of gardens and transformed the education system, like worked with the local schools and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. The bishop would say, you know, uh, our job is to create little gardens of Eden everywhere in the world. Yeah, Uh, And they did it. I mean, you know, you walk into their church and all around you it's arid and they're you know and and dry and you walk into their church and it's just abounding with life and so you see the the impact and then you go out into the rural areas and the communities and the ways that they're integrating um church planting with agriculture with community health Um, I just, you know, wonderful examples, uh, the kind of public witness that we need.
0: Yeah. I like how you described it in your book as I think it was habitus that create Christian ferment. And so it's kind of the way I understood it. You can correct me is just regular people who are living in the world, but doing things just a little bit differently. To make a change
1: yeah and i think that's a great a great way of saying it and the, and as we do those little things differently over an extended period of time there really is this gospel impact this gospel witness that happens in a community and, yeah and um and 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 I think all around the world. So, I get the joy of traveling, and I, I see these kinds of things. I could talk about ministries and churches in India that have done it, and we have churches in North America. So, it's easy to give up on the church. It's easy to give up on, you know, the 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 body of Jesus Christ, yet this is— as Leslie Newbegin he talks about the local congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And I think that's a beautiful mm. way of saying it.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. We have one more question that we ask everybody before we wrap up the interview. But before we do, we talked about a lot of things today. Is there anything else you'd like to say that I didn't know to ask?
1: No, I think I think you've done a great job addressing a lot of the the. The, the themes that I talk about in that book. I will just say that this is a new field and there is a lot of room for people to certainly disagree with what I've said or amend it or revise it, but really just calling us to say, how does the gospel, how does witness address larger facets of life? And let's mm-hmm. not be afraid to move in those directions, but let's let's do the theological and the cultural exegesis that can actually move us in that direction.
0: Yes, definitely. So last question, because the show is called The Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now?
1: So can, can I mention two or does it just have to be one?
0: <laughs> you can absolutely mention two.
1: Well, one one sounds so um, mundane, but um, I Probably for years, lifting weights and exercise has just been so life-giving to me. Mm-hmm. And I and I think um, I think you know I, I joke with people. That's you know when I when I go off to the weight room, it's probably the fa- my favorite part of the day. Which maybe sounds uh, so shallow, but it, it's actually devotional for me. yeah. And then I, I really, uh, this this issue of being amongst the nations, whether it's travel, whether it's planting a multicultural church, whether it's working with my students, I, you know, it, to me, I, I joke with people, it's like oxygen for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I, I feel like just being around people that look and feel and see things differently uh, has become such important oxygen for me
0: uh-huh. um,
1: that is just so life-giving it's life-giving theologically it's life-giving devotionally um and so uh, just trying to find opportunities to step outside of our comfort zone and and to to worship with the nations
0: yeah That's lovely. Well, Dr. Oakeson, this conversation has been a delight. Thank you so much for your time, the gift of your work and your research, and for saying yes to this interview.
1: Well, thanks for the privilege. Really grateful to do it.
0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Oakeson. This conversation gave me a lot to think about with hope. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And of course, you're free to grab a copy of Dr. Oakeson's books wherever you like to buy books. As always, you can follow Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, go do something that helps you thrive.